You may have noticed something about the name Knight Frank, the second of those two words in particular. Frank. We've always prided ourselves on being just that with our clients, and never more so than now. So if you're thinking of selling or letting your home, contact your local Knight Frank office. We'll give you a frank opinion of its value, frank advice on the best pricing strategy, and a frank estimation of how quickly it will sell or let. What else would you expect from Knight Frank, your partners in property? Hello and welcome to At Home With, a podcast in the residential business at Knight Frank. At Home With offers a glimpse inside the lives of some of the world's foremost property experts, their clients and our partners. And every week you'll be hearing conversations with interesting people from across the world about how they made it to where they are today, how they found their dream homes and how we can help you find yours. I'm your host, journalist and social media executive at Knight Frank, Rebecca Hills. Today, I'm back for a special bonus episode with our latest partner, Team GB giant slalom ski racer, Charlie Raposo. Charlie and I had such an interesting and inspirational conversation about the role both mental and physical endurance play in the world of alpine sports and how mental health factors into this too, alongside his Olympic aspirations and what it is about ski racing and giant slalom in particular that he's so passionate about. Charlie started skiing in Verbier and from an early age his ambition was to become a pro. Initially talent spotted by a Swiss coach, by 11 he was racing and at 14 he took the big step of moving to Vermont, USA to study and ski an elite ski academy. This was the major stepping stone in Charlie's rise to becoming one of the best junior racers in the world for his age. At the age of 24, Charlie has already surpassed all previous British racers in giant slalom and for the last seven years he has ranked amongst the top giant slalom skiers in the world for his age group. Charlie, it's a pleasure to welcome you onto the podcast. Hello, Becky. It's lovely to be here. Thank you for having me. And how are you today? How are things going? Obviously, you're in Austria at the moment. How are things over there with everything that's going on at the moment? I mean, for me, things are just fine. But actually, what's going on around us is chaotic, just like it is in the UK right now. Um, you know, the country is in a full lockdown. Restaurants, ho- hotels haven't been open since the end of October here and are continuing to be closed until at least the 22nd, if not longer. Um, and technically no one's meant to leave the house unless it's for essentials like going shopping or in Austria going skiing because the mountains are actually open to the public, which is a bit of an ironic uh, situation when everything else is closed. But they um, they seem to think that's very important for the people's mental health, I suppose. Yeah, it's so good that they're able to kind of see that mental health benefit and also that you're able to carry on training and kind of almost life as normal in a weird way. Have you been, obviously you've been racing and stuff like that. Have there been a lot of changes to that? How have things been from that perspective? Yeah, the situation for us, I suppose a good way to describe it is a lot of admin. Um, you know, we're testing constantly and because of the way our sport is and how much, you know, we're not, we're not Premier League football or say Formula One where you go to a track for one week, but we'll be in three, four different places within a week because of where training venues are and good training slopes and where we need to be and how dynamic this sport is. So you're testing all over the place. It's, it's kind of a bit of a scramble all the time. December was totally crazy. Um, but yeah, we're effectively all in as much of a bubble as we can be. Um, there's a limit with skiing and how much of a bubble you can be. A lot of the times nations train together, but you obviously, you know, there's no social element to the sport anymore, which is a shame because it's one of the things a lot of us love the most about it. But, you know, there's not a lot of training collaborations with other national teams or at least less so than there would normally be. 
um and we just have to be very careful and very diligent with with everything um you know even even things like going to the store and how many people you're coming into contact with because there are cases in a lot of national teams and we're just hoping that we stay strong and hold out and don't um, get too affected thankfully we're a small team so it actually makes a big difference yeah absolutely it must be so stressful having to add in all these extra elements because i suppose for for normal people you've got all the kind of added bits of extra life but when you're actually competitively racing and missing a race for instance would have an impact on on your trajectory and where you'd be able to go next that must be such a stressful thing to have to deal with yeah it is certainly a stressful thought but that being said two of the best performing ski racers in the world on the men's side this year both had covid uh end of october and in november and one of them for example in all four giant slalom races this year swiss guy marco odomar has been first second third and fourth in world cup and then alexander kilder a norwegian friend of mine he got covid after the first race end of october and he is currently leading the world cup overall standings so that being said i think um you can make a quick bounce back from having covid as an athlete as long as it doesn't hit you hard and you know obviously it's just knock on wood that anyone that does get it doesn't get hit hard by it yeah oh gosh yeah that i mean that's lucky for them that's amazing maybe it's like an almost it's a good luck thing maybe you get covid and then you become a, a world champion but um but <laughs> i mean <laughs> I'm, not, I'm, not willing, I'm not willing to test that one um it's funny actually uh another friend of mine on the tour was on a podcast a couple of weeks ago and he's like i'd love to know if there are any racers out there that actively went out there and got it on purpose and it did uh, flash me back to me being in Verbier in March back earlier this year, which while I wasn't actively trying to get COVID, I suppose just by being there once the season was cancelled was probably me signing my own will to COVID-19. <laughs> um, but uh, yeah, no, you know, fingers crossed we stay, we stay all good for the rest of the season because it is definitely a speed bump you don't want to have to encounter. Yeah, absolutely. And so to kind of kick off our conversation and get on to the the bulk of this this podcast, I'd like to take things all the way back to the start to when you first decided to get into skiing, get into ski racing and the kind of impetus behind taking it from a hobby into a career. So would you mind giving us a bit of an insight into what it was that inspired that decision and how you got started in the industry and becoming a pro ski racer? Yeah, of course. So it was... um. Yeah, my stepdad took me skiing when I was seven years old. And he says the only reason that I ended up being a ski racer was because he dislocated his shoulder the same day that he, or the afternoon in which he taught me to ski in the morning. So he says the only reason I became a ski racer is because he didn't teach me beyond one morning, um, which is um, him, you know, trying to really put down himself on his skiing abilities. He is actually a very good skier. But uh, yeah, that was in Verbier, Switzerland. And I spent a lot of years... Uh, with that kind of as my playground, I suppose, you know, I was a young kid just in love with this sport. I always loved being active, but nothing was like skiing for me. Um, and by around the age of 10, a ski instructor basically said to my parents, like, you're kind of just paying me to have a lot of fun with your son on the mountain. Like, you should probably have him try racing. Um, it could be an interesting step. And I personally don't remember actually having any idea what ski racing was at 10 years old, although there is an assignment from like year four in prep school back in England 
where I actually wrote that I wanted to be an Olympic skier. So clearly I just saw Olympics, Greeks, like they created it. That's where the best went. I'm going to ski there, even though I didn't know that ski racing was a thing. Um, anyway, fast forward, ended up at Ski Academy in the US at the age of 14 after what was three very sort of um, fast progression years. You know, I, I got to a certain level pretty quickly probably due to passion and just desire to only be a World Cup skier and nothing else. Um, it's safe to say we made that decision for me to go to the US for an educational reason. It was the best way to balance skiing and education. But I was pretty convinced at 14 years old, I had zero interest in education and only wanted to be a World Cup skier, which proved to be quite a battle while I was at high school in the US because I didn't really enjoy doing a lot of schoolwork, but thankfully I finally came to my senses and got a little bit done and got something out of it on that side. Um, now, where are we? You know, then I'm 18 years old, uh, back in Europe, ski racing full time, racing world junior champs, North American Cups, starting European Cups. I think I was around 2021 20, when I started my first World Cup, and then I was 22 slash 23 when I started kind of my first full world cup season so this is my third season really at like on the world cup level of the sport um but it's been you know, people always ask us oh, so when did you go pro um and it's a difficult question to answer in ski racing because it's kind of like what is pro is it when you sign your first contract with a company is it when you know is it when you go from amateur or like from college say in the u.s like university sport where you are not able to be paid but then you go into the nba or the nfl no it's not like that at all like it's a big gray area so to me i always kind of think of it as it was when i left high school and i really you know did my first year out of high school obviously ski racing but that you could argue that that was like a gap year just a bit unorthodox compared to what most say english people would do on a gap year but I think it was around that time when I was like, this is this is what's going to happen and this is what I want to do. And that was when the full commitment started. And then obviously now I'm here, 24, turning 25 uh, later, well, later this winter. And yeah, it's certainly my career at this point and it's what I'm, it's what I'm doing and I'm in pretty deep. Mm, that's so interesting. And obviously because you started at, at such a young age and obviously moved to, to the US to kind of pursue it more professionally at the age of 14, it probably feels like you've been doing it for almost all your life and that it feels like you've had this incredibly long career for somebody of so young. Have you found that you've kind of been matching yourself in your head to people that you knew from, from school and stuff and seeing them do different things at your age and kind of compared yourself and be like, oh, okay, I, I've kind of, I've done this all quite, quite young. And have you found that overwhelming at any points? Um, I mean, sometimes I see friends of mine that I was in high school with and I'm like, wow, like, you've already got yourself a four-year degree and done two years working in finance and I'm still ski racing. Um, so I do sometimes have that thought, which can be mildly overwhelming. But um, at the end of the day, you know, it's just different circumstances. Those guys, ski racing didn't quite work out for them. They didn't get to the level they wanted to. They had other passions, I suppose, or other other things pulling them away from the ski racing. Um, yeah, it certainly does feel like Basically, it's been most of my life because from the age of 11, pretty much every life decision, far from, you know, what I'm going to eat for dinner or a handful of other ones has been, you know, what are we doing for my ski racing? Um, which is, yeah, it's, it's 
when I say it's difficult, I'm not sure difficult is the right word. In, in some ways, it's made things more simple because it's been so clear as to what the task at hand is. But it does all of a sudden make you be like, wow, this is like, this has been my entire life, um, which is no bad thing. I don't sit there feeling that I missed out on anything. Like, you know, a lot of people go, did you not want to go to university? Like, no, not of interest to me. Um, I, I see, you know, I felt like in my senior year in high school in the US, I went to you know, some of the colleges where uh, NCAA sport, American college sport is big in the US. So a lot of very high level skiers are at college, you know, so I go go to some of the universities on the weekends and like sort of get a feel of what that was about. And to me, that was enough. I don't need to go and do a, a four year degree and, and party like most university students do to feel like I haven't missed something. Um, I feel that subsequently the path I've taken has been quite rich in experiences. Um, so no, I think it's not overwhelming, but it is, you're right, it has definitely been the vast, vast majority of my life. Mm, yeah, that's such an interesting perspective on it because I think a lot of the time people just assume that if you don't follow that almost like linear trajectory of you go to school then you go to uni and then you get a job doing this that and the other then you're not doing life in quotation marks in the right way but I think actually if you knew what you wanted to do from like the age of 11 there's no bad thing in actually pursuing that and it's quite inspirational to see that just because you have an ambition at such a young age it doesn't mean that you can't pursue it. Yeah, and I think I've, I've got to thank my mom and my stepdad and some other people that were I, actually no, you know, mostly my mom and my stepdad. And I guess my sister was always very supportive of it, but at that age, she didn't exactly have much um, or as much clout as she now would in say my mother's decision making processes. But mum, mum saw that I had a talent and potential. I suppose is like the key word. We won't say talent; we'll say potential. Um, because potential is a word that is used constantly and can very often result in nothing. Um, so I'm not tooting my own horn by saying potential, I feel like. But uh, had potential and she she channeled that and she she never pushed me at all. You know, I don't really remember how I ended up going to the US or whose decision it was, but I, I guess it must have, she says it was mine. I don't really remember the day that I said like, yep, I want to do that. You know, and that was me saying no to, I, I got into Eaton, Marlborough, Bryanston. So it was going to be one of those three, which a lot of the listeners will know that's those schools. And um, it was a very different path of life that then embarked for me. Um, and yeah, I think it was, I, I certainly appreciate that from my parents' side that they really helped to, to drive this passion forward for me and give me sort of the, the life that I've had. Because while I may not have a university degree, I do think that I've experienced a lot of things that not many have and learned a lot of things from my sport that will be invaluable in whatever was to whatever might happen next once my ski career does eventually come to an end mm, absolutely it's a testament to the fact that life is is obviously lots of different experiences and you don't need to do that one kind of set thing in order to be successful and just touching on moving to the to the US at the age of 14 how did you find the experience of growing up in in London and the UK and then moving to a completely different place where you didn't know anybody did your family move with you what was that experience like was it daunting how did you find that whole moving abroad at such a young age I absolutely loved it. <laughs> um, not It wasn't difficult at all on that side. I had been boarding at prep school. And uh, while it, it's probably relevant to the story, my father died when I was eight and he was Portuguese. So I'm half Portuguese, half English. 
so mum and my stepdad obviously became the two biggest figures in my life and I guess we another thing I don't remember before going to the US was mum basically made a rule like we're going to talk every day on the phone that you're there um so that was our thing you know used to just spend back then it was Skype you know we didn't have WhatsApp or or FaceTime it was Skype you know and we used to Skype the whole time and stay in touch so she always kind of knew what was going on but I loved it you know it was such a different experience than anything else I'd, I'd had in my life you know I went to a very proper pretty strict English prep school in Wiltshire um you know which was old school and uh you know now I'm at this ski academy in Vermont 120 um skiers or student skiers um and it was it was a whale of a time I guess the best way to summarize it was like I was 16 in the U.S. with my own car no parents like I kind of had like a surrogate mother who was epic you know one of my best friend's parents and I, I could stay there if I wanted to get off campus uh, my godparents were down in New York City. So it was it was an amazing experience. I grew up I grew up very young. You know, I was 14 years old traveling with guys that were 25 years old, um, if not older. So you just, you had to grow up quickly. Um, and sport taught me that, but it was also the people I surrounded myself with. So not for a second did I struggle with, with being over there. It was actually the, probably the best decision, one of the best decisions mom ever made. And it was it was just interesting how many of her friends at the time or people that were close to her that thought she was making such a big mistake, throwing away my education and my my um, my sort of childhood to this sport and this dream. And they actually, I, I mean, I, I think it's worked out all right. I don't think I'm too bad. <laughs> um, so no, it was uh, it was amazing. Mm, amazing that's so great to hear and I think it's again it's as you were saying it's kind of a lot of young guys dream to be doing that sort of stuff at 16 in America having that sort of freedom and and growing up so quickly did you do you think back to to that time and think you grew up too quickly or do you think that that's the kind of personality that you already had do you think you had that almost like innate confidence in order to be able to throw yourself into that and grow up quite quickly and mature quite quickly or do you think that had you stayed in England and kind of gone down the more traditional route you would have grown up in a slightly different way I think it certainly came naturally to me um because I had you know while I was say at prep school in England I had experience of still being around older people like when I was 11 12 13 and I was ski racing with British academies in Europe so I'd basically be gone all winter anyway you know, a lot of the older guys at the academies, three, four years older than me, were were friends, like actual good friends. And my sister's four and a half years older than me. So I was always very sort of in tune with older people. Um, and no, it definitely came naturally to me. I just, when I was younger, I always wanted to be older. Like I was always excited for the next thing that happened, whether that be now I can drive, now I can drink legally, now I can drink legally in the US. Not that my life was revolved around drinking, it obviously wasn't, but it was just those were obviously the um, kind of hallmarks of growing up because those are the, those are the things that happen at those ages. Um, now that I'm 25, or sorry, 24, almost 25, um, I guess I don't feel that I grew up too quickly but I'd like to stop growing up as quickly as I am because my back feels older and older every year as a ski racer. So it'd be great if I could just like go back to being 18 and have a back that just never hurt and never had any issues. That would be awesome. Um, but on a characteristic behavioral level, no, I, um, I certainly think I just, I just grew up naturally and it, it all came to me fairly young. 
Mm. And so to somebody of that 14 year old age or somebody who's looking to get into ski racing kind of looks up to you and says, I would love to do something similar. What advice would you give to them on kind of starting out and whether or not they should make that that plunge into doing something that might not be what society and what kind of other people are saying that they should be doing? What advice would you give them? It's um, it's a difficult one to say because, you know, we're all so different as as people and I could give the advice to someone that was, say, the opposite of me, very shy, quite introverted, and it would probably go through one ear and out the other. Because um, I would, the advice I would like to give to anyone is, is, is jump into the deep end, be passionate, love every second you're in the sport, take everything you can out of it. Like I knew so much about ski racing so young because I just was obsessed. Um, I loved every bit about it. I knew the names of of like everyone across all levels, you know, I knew about what like was going on at world junior champs, which is age 17 to 21 when I was like 13 years old. And like, that's not necessarily something that like most 13 year olds would know about in the sport of ski racing. Um, and that's, I guess my character, I'm a very passionate person. So that, that came, that obviously trickled into my skiing and I think it sort of applies to everything in my life as well. Um, but that's what I'd say to any young ski racer is love every moment of it and, and so take every opportunity you can to, to grow it and enjoy the experience as well. I think now in, in hindsight, I look back at it and like some of the things that I suppose it's all relative because at that time when you're 14 years old, like that race is the most important thing in the world. But now when you're older, you look back and you're like, wow, I really cared about that and I probably didn't need to um so I guess I, I always try and remind myself that now when I'm stressing or when things aren't you know going the way you want them to but uh yeah that's that's probably the bits of advice I would give Mm, that's great advice and I particularly like I think a lot of people get so caught up in the in the point of enjoying the experience and they they don't live in the moment and they stress over everything be that kind of professional ski racing or professional sport or even just like exams or things like that in in kind of younger people's lives I think we all get so wrapped up in in what's going on in our day-to-day that we don't see it as not as important or or as more of an enjoyable experience until until we look back on it is that something that you've found yourself doing more recently or have you always been a little bit more reflective and looking at okay how can I move on from that moment and say okay I found that really stressful in the moment but how this is how I deal with it now do you think that you are quite reflective in that way I suppose I've had to be um because I think if you ever want to sort of I suppose we can apply this to everything if you want to grow and develop in in a positive and like progressive manner um you have to be reflective you have to sort of look hard at yourself and and analyze what you're doing you know, whether that be me trying to make like a small technical change in my skiing or like adapt a way that I approach life that's going to benefit my skiing and make me faster. Um, you have to, you have to be quite reflective. Um, I suppose an interesting one that you said there that sort of, I wouldn't say struck a nerve, but it was a bit of a light bulb was um, talking about enjoying the moment and then getting caught up and wrapped in actually what's going on in the moment, like what's going on in that very moment in time. Um, and the difference between the two. And I think it's it's a huge one. And I constantly find myself when I'm just reflecting on on how things are going, it's like this sport has taken me all over the world with some of the most amazing people. Like, I'm a people person. There's one of the things that will always um, 
hold very true and important to me in my journey as a ski racer. It's not necessarily the wins um, or the losses, because I can tell you what, there's a lot more losses than wins. That's the craziest thing about ski racing is basically every athlete in the world has lost way more times than they've won or failed way more than they've won. There's so much kind of picking yourself up and, and pressing on. Um, but when I look back on it, it's not those bits I remember. It's a lot of the experiences and the memories with the people. And then sometimes when you're in the moment right now, you get so wrapped up in like, how's this going to go? How's this How's this ski feeling? How's this setup feeling? How are we looking for the race? How am I going to ski? You get so pent up on that. that it's very easy to let those moments of enjoyment and like the journey, I suppose, pass by. Um, and that's life. You can't always be sitting there being like, I'm just going to enjoy the journey because that's not reality. Um, at the end of the day, like, yes, those hundreds of a second are seriously important. But it's not is not a life or death thing. Um, and I'm saying this now out loud. I hope that next time hundreds of a second do matter. I feel this calm. I probably won't be. I'll probably be a lot more pent up. But it's um, it's a pleasant reminder. And, and every time you talk about it with anyone um, or even think about it yourself, you do find yourself very much saying, OK, well, actually, no, I am I enjoying this journey and everything about it because I believe in in any walk of life, happiness is going to result in success to some extent, or at least fulfillment results in success. Um, or success, I guess, is a byproduct or fulfillment is a byproduct of success. Um, but I think it's massively important. And I think right now with COVID, it's something that a lot of people are struggling with. I know within ski racing, it's a lot harder to enjoy the journey at the moment. So you really do have to dig to find the the simple things that make it very enjoyable, just the fact that we're able to do what we're what we're doing right now, able to travel and compete and train is like, that's a huge win considering what's going on right now. So you have to sort of re-channel those enjoyment factors of the sport and allow those to, um, to give you that happiness to then, to then help aid that performance. Mm, no, absolutely. And I think there's some really important points there that people can kind of really have a think about and take away with them. And I think it is that that really interesting dichotomy in especially sport between having to put a certain amount of stress and pressure on yourself in order to perform and improve and that sort of thing. And then also trying to enjoy the moment at the same time and, and understand that failure isn't necessarily something that defines you and that there is that success and happiness balance. And I think, as you mentioned there with, with COVID and people having to dig a little bit deeper to, to find that enjoyment in it and, and make the most of that, those moments when everything is crazy at the moment. Do you think that you've had to reconsider how you you view that sort of stuff in the past year and had to take a little bit more care of of your mental health and people within the industry more generally do you find that now everyone's having a lot more conversations about mental health and the pressures of the sport and not being defined by that failure and not letting it eat you up a little bit yeah i think um you know mental health is at the forefront of everyone's mind right now um i suppose it's it's all relative mental health, right? And I I cannot sit here and, and complain about my situation. Like I'm I'm doing great, I'm happy, I'm doing what I love, like like work is going on as per se. It's great. But definitely some of those things that I think aid my mental health or make my mental health good 
I am somewhat deprived of right now. Like, you know, one of our primal human instincts is, is people and socializing. And that's very limited right now. I'm sure, you know, friends are just a FaceTime call away, but it's definitely been, it's been difficult for me because I'm incredibly extroverted. And that is a, um, that's a big way of me to let the pressure valve go is, um, is socializing. So, you know, I found myself and I'm finding ways to deal with it despite what's going on with COVID. Um, but I found myself very much say the last four months, um, where it just feels like life is solely ski racing and there's no escape. It's not like you can even go out for a nice meal and just like forget about ski racing or have a few drinks with some friends or whatever it might be to blow off steam you are deprived of. And I think sort of an example here, because a lot of people, um, a lot of people will maybe question what I just said there or, or be a bit confused by it. Um, let's take Lewis Hamilton, as an, Lewis Hamilton as an example, seven-time world champion. Pretty much anyone who listens to this is going to know who Lewis is. And Lewis has spent years at the top of the sport and has spent a lot of time, and we're talking in between race weekends, um, very far removed from the motor racing. You know, he's developing fashion lines with companies. He's at Fashion Week parties. He's making music with Christina Aguilera, whatever Lewis is doing and channeling his energy to. You know, he'll be, he'll be at a Fashion Week party on a Wednesday. He's back in the car on Friday. He's winning qualifying on Saturday and a race on Sunday. And there were people waiting like hawks to, uh, to, to, to slaughter Lewis when he got it wrong during that time period, especially when he was, you know, two, three, four-time world champion. They were really waiting for him to get it wrong. And it never came. And no one ever looked at that as maybe this is performance enhancing. Um, and it's not, you know, I'm not, uh, I don't necessarily know right now what is like always going to be a performance enhancing for me or not. But I know that not having that social interaction or those other outlets to sort of take me away from the skiing has been very difficult for me and subsequently a little bit difficult for my mental health, but not, not anything that I'm not able to work through myself and deal with. Um, so I think it's just an interesting component to look at, you know, whether it be on a sport front or even just in a real life front, you know, a lot of people work in a very high intensity environment and they need that pub on a Friday afternoon. They need their time with their family, whatever it might be. Um, but a lot of people have been limited from that, um, vice is the wrong use of word, but I guess that outlet, you know, gyms, for example, being closed has been something people have really struggled with back in London because it's kind of like, well, I live in a concrete jungle. I can't even go to the gym. So the only thing I can do is go running or work out in the park. And like, there's a limitation to what you can do there. And a lot of people just like being in the gym. Um, so I think that's kind of my take on on how that has affected me and how I've needed to adapt to that. Mm, no, and I think it's all about ultimately when it comes to to mental health and looking after yourself on a more kind of emotional front is that introspection and is that self-awareness. It's understanding that what makes you happy, what is good for your mental health, what isn't good for your health and just kind of stepping back and, and taking a look at it. So I think that's a really fresh perspective on it. And I think as a really interesting way of looking at it. And to bring it back on to, to skiing and to go back into the sport more specifically, for somebody who knows absolutely nothing about snow sports, can you tell us a little bit more about kind of the intricacies of ski racing and how it differs from, from other kind of alpine sports? 
Yeah, okay, so I'm going to try and give you this in the most simplest form. Ski racing is effectively going from A, the start gate, to B, the finish line, as quickly as possible while going around all the gates, is what we call them, but those can be poles or flags, however people look at it and see it, um, as quickly as possible. There are there are six there are four main disciplines slalom giant slalom super g and downhill and the difference from slalom to downhill is the length of ski uh how quickly that ski turns like how short the turn radius is and uh how fast you're then going in the discipline as well as uh how the courses are set so in slalom you've got about six to ten meters between gates in giant slalom, you've got 22 to 29. In super G, you've got 40 to 80. And in downhill, you've got 50 to 150. Downhill is the big bad uh, demon within ski racing. You know, fair play to any downhillers. I thankfully was given genetics that makes me just too much of a small frame to ever be a downhiller, which is great because I never want to be a downhiller. Those guys are nuts. Um, but it's, uh, you know, downhill, you're going up to speeds of 160 kilometers an hour. It's the fastest, so that's 100 miles an hour. It's the fastest speed clocked in a downhill race. And that's icy, bumpy, chattery. You're losing your teeth, not literally, but that's what it feels like. Um, and it's hectic. Uh, I just ski giant slalom and also a, a new discipline, which I didn't include. It's called Parallel GS. It's where you've got two courses side by side. And it's a sprint distance, so it's only 25 seconds and you're racing against an opponent, um, which was actually the first race I did this year with Knight Frank on my helmet in Lech. Um, so those are how the disciplines work. You know, I ski on a 193-centimeter ski, for example. Um, and, yeah, I, I suppose that's how it works. The World Cup Tour goes normally all around the world um, with – you know, the disciplines are spread. So for example, in Canada, you only have super G and downhill, which are speed disciplines. Um, some places you only have tech, which is slalom and GS technical disciplines. Um, so I guess that is the quickest and easiest way to break that down. It's uh, actually no, another quick detail in technical disciplines, there's two runs and uh, both runs combined is your time. And then your place and like points and whatever is based on distance off the leader of the race in downhill and super G is just one run. Um, and the course length in GS is anywhere from a minute to a minute 20, for example. So I'm going to leave it there because I feel like I'm on a slippery slope of talking way too much. <laughs> <laughs> no, not at all. As somebody who knows very, very little about snow sports, that's a really interesting um, insight into what it is. And when it was when it came to deciding what you were going to specialise in and where your your strengths lie, when did you make that decision and, and how did you go about deciding what you were going to specialise in? Was it okay, I'm really good at this one, so I'm going to put all my effort into this? Or was it kind of a more roundabout journey and working out what to do? Um, it was pretty straightforward. G giant slalom always came a lot more naturally to me. I skied slalom and giant slalom, and I had strong races in slalom when I was younger. But it was always, uh, you know, from the age of 17 on, I was top three for my year of birth in the world in giant slalom. Um, so that was always the strongest discipline, and I showed I showed good speed in that at a, at a fairly young age uh, compared to some guys that were obviously really, really fast in the world. So it was uh, not that I was 
fifth in World Cup races, but I was showing speed in some races and training sessions where I was like, this is the discipline I'd, I'd probably have a chance of being world class in. And it was just, to be honest, I was looking at the data. I stopped skiing slalom when I was 22 years old. So it hasn't been that long since I stopped skiing it. But it was, it was looking at the data and realizing that there's only, um, for example, in ski racing, uh, the top 30 in the world is kind of this big, that, that, that's where you need to be. That's where you want to be um, in the World Cup. It's very difficult to get in there because of this protection system. But once you're in, um, it's, it's pretty sweet. And that's where you start sort of making big money. Um, and when you look at the top 30 in giant slalom and the top 30 in slalom, bearing in mind both of those disciplines are technically technical disciplines, uh, I think there's only eight or nine guys that are in the top 30 in both. So you've got 21 guys in slalom and GS. I might be slightly wrong on that fact, but it's, it's anywhere between eight and 12 guys. But then, yeah, when you look at the two disciplines, you've got basically 20 guys in both disciplines that are just specialists. And um, it was kind of set by, you know, in Great Britain, we've got our, um, I suppose you could say our team leader, because he's the best. Um, Dave Riding, he's 34. Um, and he's ranked somewhere around 10 in the world in slalom. And he made the decision back five, six, seven years ago to to specialize in slalom. And it was basically because he said, well, I'm trying to juggle two disciplines and I'm trying to beat a load of guys that are just focusing on one. So like the reality of it is, is I'm kind of, um, kind of doing two half-handedly here. Not that they don't benefit each other and like training them is important. I still train slalom from time to time, but when it comes to racing and like managing the travel load and the rest load, it's it's really difficult doing both disciplines um and you know those eight guys that are the best in the world in both are yeah they're they're, they're the creme de la creme of ski racing they're the guys you know and a lot of them are swiss austrian norwegian french um italian you know and uh very much from the skiing nations and have been have been the best best in the game for a long time Mm, and you touched on on training and how it's difficult to to kind of manage specializing and training for for two different things and that's why you decide to pursue the, the one discipline at the height of the season what does your racing training almost relaxing routine look like how do you go about training and making sure that you're in the optimal condition in order to to perform your best during your races i suppose so here is the um like in the best layman's term and this is what normally baffles people right because say you go and play like a football game you play for 90 minutes or a rugby game you're playing however long you're playing um in ski racing i'll break it down the last three days for you so we're um today is tuesday so um tuesday monday and sunday okay we trained the last three days and i did the course was around 45 to 50 seconds long I did six runs in the course the first day, five the second, and four today. So that's the grand total of give or take. You know, I did today uh, three minutes of skiing in the course. Plus, I did two warm-up runs and an inspection. So I probably actually skied the grand total of maybe five minutes today. That would be generous, right? And that's not including, like, the going on T-bars and, like, the sort of commuting to and from the course. That's me actually focusing on skiing. And the days before that were probably eight, you know, maybe nine, like bordering 10, if we're being generous. Um, that being said, the window of actually training was three to three and a half hours. 
because by the time I do my warm up, you know, I've got to spend 20 minutes basically getting my body warm before I even start putting ski boots on. And then the whole process that comes into it. So there's loads of like, it sounds so ridiculous to explain. And it took a long time for my strength and conditioning coach. Uh, so he takes care of like all my physical training during the off season and during the season as well, like dry land training. Took him a while to really come to terms with like how ridiculous this sport is. Or the fact that like, he can't wrap his head around after a week of really hard physical training in the summer, my back is fine. Whereas after like three days of ski racing, my back is like totally torched and it looks like I've got like two ramrods down the side of my back because the muscles are so tight. And it's because it's just such an obscure sport and so fatiguing in so many levels. It's so much of like pushing your central nervous system to the limit. Um, I, I can say this pretty firmly because a lot of people have said it, whether there's someone that can prove it wrong, I don't know. But I don't think there's any sport where as much force comes from the ground and into your body than in ski racing, right? Directly, like from my ski into my ski boot and then in through my leg up into my back. There's no sport that, I'm, that is producing as much force. Obviously, motor racing, the Gs are huge. Or in rugby and American football, the uh, impact of when you get hit is huge. That's a way bigger force than one turn for us. But the consistency of that is really high. So... To wrap that point back up, um, it's kind of like we don't train that much because the training we do is so fatiguing. Um, it's a really odd sport as well. We spend so much time doing so much physical dryland training. Like the ratio is so off. We probably it's probably like one to four. Like for every one hour of time on skis, it's four hours of physical training time across uh, a year. Um, which is which is pretty obscure compared to most sports where you can just say you're a basketball player you can just be in your backyard just like practicing your free throws like for us it's so much admin to actually go training you know you've got multiple staff on the hill you've got courses to set timings to set up video cameras out to to video us skiing and analyze you've got to dye the snow like i i will be missing so many little details that my coach has to do every day just to get things set up so subsequently, we have to, there's a lot of strategic and logistical planning that goes into the whole thing. You know, we now, it's Tuesday, I will now have Wednesday, tomorrow will just be like a light physical training session, and then totally rest as much as possible. Thursday, we have a six hour drive over to Switzerland, which is a rival day in Adelboden. And then Friday, Saturday is race. Um, so that will actually turn out to be a pretty intense week, because there's there's no day of nothing. And I know that sounds like ridiculous to most, but days of nothing are quite important because six hours in the car is like the furthest thing from rest, um, which again will sound weird to some, but it's um, it's just some of the details we have to deal with, you know, and subsequently after many years, I've now been with the same coach for four years um, and our head coach of the whole British team is sometimes with us as well. He's been around for four years. Um you know, we've refined what works for me and like how to plan the schedule and the training around that. But the winter is generally just just keeping the engine ticking over. Like, yeah, you discover new things with the skis and the boots and the setup because that's something we're constantly testing and evolving, tiny little changes to equipment. Um, but generally, you're not getting that much better at skiing during the winter. That's That work is done in the summer where you're skiing a really high volume and really pushing yourself. During the winter, you're just trying to stay as fresh as possible and keep a, a good feeling on the skis and um, 
and yet be prepared for kind of the next races, which are normally we're racing. It's, it's pretty rare. We have over two weeks off. Uh, this year with the COVID schedule, we do in some areas because they kind of like put two races on in one venue, which is what's happening this weekend. Whereas in a normal year, we'd only have one in Adelaide and Switzerland. That's absolutely fascinating. So I do a lot of reading and research around endurance and, and fitness and that sort of stuff and kind of understanding how top athletes get to where they are. And in, in most sports, it does tend to be you're, you're doing the cross training, you're doing weights, you're doing that sort of stuff. But a lot of it is kind of if you're a runner, you're running or if you're, you're a cyclist, you're cycling. But it's really interesting to hear that it's actually all about the stuff you do outside of the skiing that's incredibly important and I suppose it's you probably need like a lot of like balance and endurance and that sort of stuff that people wouldn't necessarily think of you just think oh well you you ski that's how you get better so I think that's really interesting to to understand and on that point of endurance you said that you will only be skiing for kind of three or four minutes and and the average race isn't particularly long do you still obviously need that that endurance and how do you go about developing that almost mental endurance and resilience to be able to deal with what you said is like excruciating back pain and going through all that stuff that goes alongside it yeah i think um you hit the nail on the head there you know the big reason there's so much physical training for us is because there really is a limit to how much we can ski because our bodies will just break. You know, there have been guys, one Croatian guy who's retired now, he was he was amazing ski racer, Ivica Kostelic, but he broke. His body broke because he pushed himself so much and skied so much volume and there was no way his body could handle it. Knees and back basically totally gone um, by the end of his career. So we we have to look at ways we're making ourselves as good as possible and, and a lot of that's done on the dry land, you know, whether it's... Um, in the gym, lifting weights, working on strength, power, um, or working on endurance or like anaerobic uh, interval kind of training. Um, so there's a balance between the two because obviously we are, you know, if it's a minute 20 GS, your legs, you're not feeling your legs in the finish. You know, you're exhausted at the bottom. So that is working that anaerobic system and that interval system. But the endurance comes from the fact that I ski one discipline. So I never have a super crazy schedule. But if there's guys that, you know, friend i was talking about earlier that got covid he's now leading the overall title alex he um before christmas he had three races in a row a super g a downhill then a giant slalom all world cup level um bearing in mind before the downhills he had the training run days as well so he had five days on pushing himself to the absolute limit um you need that endurance to be able to to make that work and, and to be able to recover and get your body to to flush those kind of like waste products out if we're getting scientific um so yeah it's, it's a balance of all of those training components to be able to deal with it and the mental endurance yeah that's a that's a big thing a race day bearing in mind a race day you'll do two runs of a minute course and a bit of warm-up here and there i think most people would be absolutely baffled by the actual statistics of what happens on a race day because that adrenaline keeps your heart rate high all day you're burning calories like you wouldn't believe um if anyone wants to burn calories I would highly recommend trying ski racing because it's, um, yeah, it's a lot of food that needs to be eaten after a race day. That's for sure. <laughs> yeah. For the, all those kind of January dieters, they've got their new, their new workout regime now. <laughs> and obviously I was doing some research on you and it was saying that you're the number one British giant slalom skier. And that's obviously an incredible title to have achieved. What are you looking to for the future? What is your big aspiration kind of going forward in, in what you're doing at the moment? Do you have a very concrete list of goals or is it a little bit more fluid? Yeah. You know, obviously it's a proud and it's, it's an honor to be best British giant slalom skier but that's far from where the the goal ends 
Um, yeah, it's just, uh, that's just, that's just what is, I suppose. Um, you know, my, my goals are certainly to, to be at a very high level in the world in the sport. You know, I, I don't necessarily put a specific number on it. You know, winning an Olympic gold medal would be amazing. There's one Olympics that comes across every four years. And there's a reason as to why the World Cup tour is far bigger to ski racers than the Olympics, because there's elements of consistency. You know, if you win a World Cup title, you've been strong across a whole season versus an Olympics is one day. And there's so many variables in ski racing that come into play that you can't really sit there and be like, I'm focusing solely on the Olympic Games. You know, you, you're, you're racing all season long. The Olympics just happens to be a race that happens in the middle of the World Cup tour on that said season. Um, so while obviously going to the Olympics and performing at the Olympics would be amazing, certainly a dream and Olympic medal. Um, I just know that I want to be at the top level of the sport. Yeah, I want to be right up there in, in basically in ski racing based on the start list as a top seven group. And I know that that's where I want to be sitting. I want to be in that top seven group. I'd love to be a podium contender in World Cup, which subsequently means podium contender in um, World Champs and Olympics as well. So I guess that's that's my end goal. And then that, that's been the goal for a while. You know, being the best British giant slalom skier is great, but it's um it's far from where I want to be. Mm, amazing. And I think that's, again, it's it's really... Again, just for me personally, it's really interesting to hear that because obviously everyone thinks of the the Olympics being the the big thing for all athletes. You just think, oh, well, obviously they just want to be at the Olympics, but it's it's super interesting to hear that it's actually about the World Cup and that looking at it as a more holistic thing and saying, okay, well, there's lots of different variables that can come into play. So rather than just focusing on on one thing, be it the Olympics, you're less likely to get almost disappointed because you can you can structure it across the whole thing, which I think is a really different way of looking at sport. Yeah, I just think that you have. Um... You obviously have outcome goals, but you can't really sit here and focus on those outcome goals. You know, those are those outcome goals are goals that I had when I was 14 years old that, you know, are still a tr- I'm still living true to. But it's very much a, you know, a focusing on the process and the um, progression that happens within that. Like, I can't really control how, what result I'm going to end up getting in any given race. All I can control is how I ski in that race and how I approach that race and how much I push myself and how prepared I am for that race. That's, that's really the only things that I can control. So you just have to try and control those controllables. Um, it's very easy to get sucked into being outcome focused because as humans, that's the monkey on our shoulder trying to play games with us. Um, but just trying to bring it back to being process driven is huge. Because it's safe to say on on any given training day, you're just going out there and doing your thing. Yeah, you know, you're not really thinking about it much. You're just you're just letting things hang out and skiing, to be honest. Like just skiing. Um, you know, people might look at it and go, like, oh, that's crazy. Like, how the hell is he doing that? But that must be so difficult. It's like it's it's not really. It's kind of like walking. Um, sometimes it's it's a little bit more extreme than walking when you really gotta turn the dial up a little bit. But it's um, it becomes pretty second nature. At least that's how you try and drill it into your system. And then when you come to races, it's like letting that happen. You know, the um, the margins are so fine in ski racing, like so outrageously fine. You know, we're dealing with literally hundreds, tenths, occasionally seconds, um, but pretty rare. But it's it's to that extent. 
Mm, yeah, that's, I mean, I could literally talk about this sort of stuff for, for hours, but this is ultimately a property podcast. So I do have to ask you about property at some point. <laughs> All listeners are having to be listening to me talk about ski racing for far too long. No, got to get some houses in there somewhere. Um, but uh, for anybody who doesn't know, um, and I will have spoken about this in the introduction, but you've just partnered with, with us, with Knight Frank. And obviously we're a property company and property and skiing are intrinsically linked, but I'd be interested to get your perspective on kind of how property plays a role in your life. Do you have ambitions of, of buying in, in Verbier and in, in the Alps or where you're at, at the moment? Do you have aspiration to have a place in London? What are your property ambitions in life and how does property affect your life in what you kind of are interested in or does it have much of a role in your life? Yeah, it certainly does. Um, property as an industry has been something I've sort of grown up with. Mum was an interior designer, did some property development stuff. My sister works in property as well. She actually used to work for Mike Frank, but now she runs her own um, boutique small company. Um, so it's it's certainly something that I've I've grown up with. I've been fortunate enough to see some amazing properties all over the world, and sometimes stay in very nice properties as well. Um, so it's certainly on my radar, and I'd go as far as to say it's even on my radar for life after skiing as well, because it's um it's one of the few things I very much appreciate. And I think it's um, a lot of things in life that we tend to um, get drawn to are deemed materialistic. And property isn't really that because at the end of the day, property becomes a home. And a home is one of our like key uh, principal needs in life as a human. So I think it's um, it's an interesting way to, I suppose, match like a match a primal need with that like materialistic desire that a lot of us possess, I suppose. Um, so yeah, I'm really interested in it. I'm um, yeah, obviously I'm living in London now. I love London. I love the city buzz as an extrovert. That's huge for me. And I feel that that I, I've always felt that living in London is a huge thing that I need in my life to then go away to the mountains for you know the majority of the winter, because while I spend a lot of time in Verbier, Oh, actually, while I spend some time in Verbier, I wish it was more, um, a lot of the places we go to are quite quiet, desolate, or even just I'm in my own world focusing on a race. I go to Val d'Isere and I don't really get much of the Val d'Isere experience. I just you know, see it from the outside because actually I'm there focusing on a race. Um, but no, I think uh, I love Verbier as a place that will, I'm sure you're going to ask me about my favorite ski resort. You don't need to bother because it's Verbier. Um, so I I certainly have property desires in London and in the mountains, but who knows? I'm, I'm 24. That could definitely change. So a big factor is going to be who I end up marrying and so on and so forth because, yep, who knows? I may be living somewhere else. Um, so time will tell on that one. No, and that's that's hugely exciting that you, you could have the opportunity to to live in Verbier, to live in London and all those sorts of places. And on the topic of Verbier, that links almost seamlessly into my next question, as we've just opened an office in Verbier, which is why this partnership between yourself and Knight Frank is such a great fit. But before we get into discussing why you chose to partner with us specifically, I'd love to drill into the partnership side of the professional sport world more generally. And kind of how having social media and a digital profile plays into this. So I'd be keen to hear your take on whether you feel that having a digital presence mainly through social media is vital for boosting your profile in the industry and securing that sponsorship. I think it's a huge part 
um, of the puzzle, I suppose, or, or the package. We'll call it the package. Um, you know, I've, I had a website when I was 14 years old. I was blogging as a 14-year-old. Like, I wish I still had some of the blogs because I probably cringe and laugh a lot because um, I think God knows what I wrote about at 14 years old. It would have been absolute waffle, just like probably a lot of what I've been saying in the last hour. But, um, yeah, it's it's a really... It's a really big component because it's it creates that brand image that people see straight off the bat. You know, when they basically anyone now when they're looking at things like Instagram is one of their big search tools for people. Um, you Google Instagram. Um, so it's, it's the first, it's the face of of you that they see on a digital presence. Trying to get the dialogue right is is difficult. It's something I'm constantly refining. This is like how to best sort of give off like my authentic self. But it's not the only part of the puzzle because you have to be incredibly proactive with your partnerships as well. So your know, partnerships don't just show up because you know they see you're working with one people, so they want to work with you regardless of anything else. It's actually finding the synergy between partners. You know, Knight Frank obviously came about, and I'm super happy to be partnered with Knight Frank. And a big part of that is trying to create that synergy now that Knight Frank have a Verbier office, um, and it became all of a sudden very relevant to the Alpine business in a time when you know, Alpine property is is certainly on the up. So I think it's, um yeah, digital presence is important, but it's it's not the only part of the puzzle when it comes to finding sponsorships and increasing a brand value as an athlete or as a, a company brand yourself. Mm, and you mentioned there that, that synergy between your partners and your sponsors. And so I suppose that leads us on quite nicely to me asking, why did you decide that we as Knight Frank were the right partner for you? What inspired that decision? And and how do you see that that partnership enhancing what you're doing at the moment? I think it's um, Knight Frank's an iconic brand and, and I love what the brand stands for on, on all fronts. I think property is incredibly relevant to ski racing in a whole. Obviously, there's incredibly valuable property all over the Alps. And I think that me being able to represent Knight Frank is a is a great opportunity for myself and also for Knight Frank in that Alpine business. Um, so I just knew it was the right match from the get-go. And, you know, I'm glad that everyone involved in the process felt that was the same way. And I think uh, I think a big part of it as well, to be honest, Becky, was, um, you know, some of the partners that I already had in place, whether that be Verbier as a resort, Howden, insurance brokers um, in London. You know, a lot of these companies had that synergy with Knight Frank. So when when Knight Frank looked at it and said, yeah, okay, this actually does make sense for us, for us that was that was a big part of the puzzle as well, um, or the decision-making process there. Um, so no, it, it, it's a brand on, on all levels. It's it's not just a, a property giant and a, and a big property consultancy company. There's so many little things that Knight Frank are doing from their activations and mental health and how they're trying to to shape the dialogue on that and and take a lead within big British companies. And I think I I massively love that shift that, that Knight Frank have made. Um, and, and you see a lot of that on a digital presence, but I know there's also a lot they're doing physically with their employees and and so on. Mm, no, absolutely. And I think that mental health point is, is really important. And it's why I wanted to have more of that discussion with you today was that ultimately, when you look at any kind of industry, if you look at any career path, if you look at any job, no matter what you're doing, mental health plays a part in that. So I think it's great to hear that, that that's something that we as a brand are presenting outwardly and people are resonating with on a personal level as well.
And so to move on to, to the penultimate section of our interview, we begin to wrap up every podcast with a quick fire round. And the first question of which is city or country? Definitely city. There's too many spiders in the country. <laughs> I'd have to agree on that one. Um, Europe or the US? I've got to say Europe. I, I loved my time in the US, but by the time I left, I knew it was because I wanted to come back to Europe and how easy it is to to be in whether you're in the south of France in Portugal and Verbier in London you just got a little bit of everything so close penthouse or chalet <laughs> that is like such a mean question to ask me <laughs> um I am just gonna say both and I, I can't make that decision that's the uh, ah penthouse in the mountains is that oh very very good answer that? yeah that's yeah. a very good loophole I'll accept that one penthouse in the mountains and, and a place in London yeah perfect <laughs> Yep, perfect. <laughs> uh, Verbier or Val d'Azer? That's a silly question, Verbier. And finally, Switzerland or London? <laughs> <laughs> what? Are you just trying to give me a really hard time at the end of this podcast or what? Yeah, it's going to be a bit challenging. <laughs> oh, Jesus. Um, there's so many things I love about Switzerland. I love Verbier, but London is home and I feel like just slightly etches ahead London there just slightly excellent <laughs> not the quickest of quick fire rounds but definitely some yeah, interesting sorry, answers I'm in there really um, giving single single word answers <laughs> <laughs> and so the final question um, that I want to ask you is and we've kind of touched on this a little bit already but what does your partnership with Night Frank mean to you it's something I'm incredibly proud of um, and, and it's a real honor for me to be partner with Night Frank to, to have Knight Frank believe in in me and want to support me in, in my journey in ski racing and my endeavors and what's coming up in the next two years with world champs this year and the Olympics the next year. I think it's, um, that means a lot to me that they're willing to, um, to make that investment in the partnership with me. And, and yeah, it's, it's, it's an, it's an honor for me to represent such an iconic British and now global brand. Um, on on the international stage in in a in a elite sport, I think it's um not not many people get to do that, and um for that it is very much an honor that I that I appreciate a lot, and yeah I, I look forward to how this partnership will continue to develop in the years to come. Amazing, thank you so much. This has been a great interview, Charlie. Perfect, thank you. Thanks so much for listening to this bonus episode of At Home With. If you'd like to find out more about Charlie and follow his incredible journey, make sure to follow him on Instagram at Charlie Raposo. We'd also love it if you subscribe to this podcast on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts and share this episode on social media. We'll be back on the 10th of February with Series 3 and I can't wait for you to hear it. <laughs>